A 64-year-old attorney is making his way slowly up the concrete steps of the courthouse in Modesto, California. His body is racked with pain. His heavy shoulders are hunched forward over the cane he carries in his right hand. From his left hand swings a cracked black leather satchel stuffed with his legal files. He's here at 8.30 on a Monday morning in June 2019 to do the unpopular work of defending the wrongly accused, the thoroughly guilty, and clients at every point in between. He's made this trip thousands of times. In better days, he swaggered the flamboyant terror of cops and prosecutors and judges. I haven't had any qualms about going after law enforcement for lying. If they fudge, once they fudge, it's open season. This is Frank Carson, the most combative and controversial criminal defense lawyer in Stanislaus County. His kidneys are failing, his sciatic nerve is aflame, and his morning Vicodin hasn't kicked in. The effort to get up the steps makes him wince, but he hates to give any satisfaction to his enemies. He has many. For decades, he's defeated his law enforcement adversaries in court and raged against them in unapologetically venomous terms. He names names in a Central Valley legal community where the cast of characters is small and the memories long. You know, they say, well, Mr. Carson, you're personal. You know what? It can't be any more personal to the guy that I'm representing. And even if I had a doubt about my client's innocence by the time we started the trial. Usually by the end of it, I was absolutely convinced. I've had attorneys, uh, God rest their soul, some are dead now, and they said, oh, Frank, you should have seen me. It was Carson-esque. I told him off and all that. That isn't the point. The point is to win. As he shuffles between courtrooms, cops watch him pass, and a chill seems to enter their mood. To the law enforcement establishment, the man with the cane and the black leather satchel is something more malevolent than a clever lawyer who pushes boundaries. This is why Carson will eventually make his way to the courtroom at the end of the first floor hall. There, one of the longest murder trials in California history is unfolding. There, for more than a year, Carson has taken his seat at the defense table, not as the attorney, but as the accused. To the district attorney, Carson's trial represents long overdue justice for a killer with a law license, a kind of local mob boss known as Uncle Frank. To Carson's supporters, it's the culmination of a massive law enforcement conspiracy bent on destroying him for doing his job too well. These are the competing versions of reality in the people of the state of California versus Frank Carson et al. when I arrive at the Modesto courthouse. Each scenario seems staggeringly weird and improbable, each too fantastic to be believed. But before I saw it, so would the spectacle of an attorney representing murder defendants in the courthouse where he was on trial as one himself. One of the first things Carson tells me is, I've given him hell for 25 years, putting my thumb in the eye of the man. And so he was not totally surprised when one morning four years earlier, authorities had come 
for him. Frank Carson, this is the Manteca Police Department. Come to the front door, with your hands up, we have a search warrant. Frank Carson, we have a search warrant. Put your hands up. Contact, front door. Step outside with your hands up, sir. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. Episode 1 the lawyer, and the thief. This has been uh, a long three-year investigation uh, into the death and homicide of Corey Kaufman. Uh, and as you can see by uh, the chiefs and my colleagues who stand with us, uh, this was a multi-agency effort. We hope to serve justice for the Kaufman family. Stanislaus County Sheriff Adam Christensen announced the charges at a press conference in August 2015. We arrested uh, Frank Carson today for murder, his wife Georgia Filippo for murder, Christina Filippo, his daughter, uh, for conspiracy and accessory uh, to murder, the Atwal brothers, the business owners in Turlock, uh, Daljeet and Baljeet Atwal for murder, Carson was the supposed puppet master of a complicated murder and cover-up conspiracy. Among his accused accomplices were his wife and stepdaughter, as well as the handyman at a popular local liquor store and a pair of brothers who ran it. Walter Wells for murder, Scott McFarlane for conspiracy and accessory to commit murder, Eduardo Quintanar again for conspiracy. As if this wasn't bizarre enough, three California Highway Patrol officers were among those who had allegedly danced on Uncle Frank's marionette strings. California Highway Patrol Commissioner Joe Farrow sat atop a Leviathan State Police Agency with 11,000 employees. He said the accused officers had been stripped of their police powers. I'm here, uh, saddened by the news uh, that has been revealed here this afternoon. Um, California Highway Patrol is a very proud organization uh, it values and integrity is uh, uh, beyond the description at times and to hear news like this is, is devastating to our organization for a fleeting moment the case put Stanislaus County in the national news what kind of madness was going on in the Central Valley how deep did the corruption run how did a defense attorney famous for his withering scorn of local cops stand accused of conspiring with three of them. Who was this attorney at the heart of it? And who was the young man he was accused of having killed? Corey Corndog Kaufman was 26, and he was an enterprising thief. He shared a house with his stepdad and other relatives on the fringe of Turlock, a small town just down Highway 99 from Modesto. 
Neighbors would see him pedaling his red bicycle up and down the block, a slim, goateed young man in boots and a cowboy hat. He's just this big ball of sunshine to me. Maybe because I'm his mom, that's all I've seen. I don't know. His mother, Terry, lived out of state. That child had a lot of dreams. He wanted to get married, and he wanted to have a whole bunch of kids, and he loved kids. And he just wanted to pretty much just grow up. He just kept telling me, Mom, I just want to grow up, you know, inside. Kaufman was a loner with a methamphetamine habit. He prowled empty silos and abandoned buildings in search of metal to scrounge and steal. He carried gloves, pliers, and bolt cutters, plus a strap-on headlamp for night work. It was dangerous work. He once gouged his head on a nail, climbing a telephone pole for copper. Another time, he nearly severed his hand in the garage where he cut up old cars and trailers. On good days, he could make $200 at the recycling center. The San Joaquin Valley is one of the world's top agricultural producers, a multi-billion dollar economic powerhouse. It is also a breadbasket of crystal meth. Day and night, major quantities of the drug travel up and down Interstate 5 and Highway 99. Kaufman was a minor player in the area's busy narcotic ecosystem. Turlock has about 73,000 people with a Foster Farms turkey plant, almond orchards, and a Cal State campus. To grow up there, as Kaufman did, is to see the same faces your whole life. For a meth addict with any hope of getting clean, proximity to fellow users invited relapse. He would get his life straightened out. He'd be doing really good. But those people seem to find a way to just move back into your life. For years, Kaufman had been courting trouble. During a fight when he was 19, he lunged at a man with his knife, then hid in a doghouse until police ordered him out at gunpoint. He threatened to use his knife again when some men caught him prowling around their neighborhood with break-in tools. More than once, police caught him with meth. When he was caught stealing a $10 ring from J.C. Penney, he explained he wanted to sell it for drugs. For a while, Kaufman found work with his biological father, Tony Kaufman, who ran a local freight hauling business. But he proved an unreliable worker, and his father didn't approve of his habit of stealing metal wherever he found it. I had to let him go. I was basically letting him know that I didn't approve of him being a thief. I didn't approve of that lifestyle, that stealing, and Corey was like, well, it's just rotting in somebody's backyard. You know, at least I can make some money off of it. And I go, well, it's their stuff to rot. Yeah. It's not for you to take it. Meth addicts, or tweakers, were so common that weary locals sometimes called the county seat Methdesto. Addicts drifted and disappeared and reappeared. When Kaufman vanished in early 2012, authorities dutifully logged it in and took note of his lifestyle. It did not immediately attract a massive law enforcement response. Frank Carson's parents came to Modesto from Texas after World War II. His mom got a job as a bottler at the Gallo Winery. His father worked as a lineman for the telephone company and built their house piecemeal, buying fresh lumber with his paycheck every two weeks. 
Modesto is George Lucas's hometown too, and his film American Graffiti was an ode to its early 60s culture of sock hops, drive-ins, and hot rodders cruising the strip. For Carson, as a kid, the town was a place of frequent brawling. He says that helps explain his devil-may-care attitude to making powerful law enforcement enemies. By the time I got to be a lawyer, I'd fought everybody. What's, what's there to be afraid of? Carson grew up solidly Republican, a firm believer in law and order. He delivered meat for a butcher and sold old books to put himself through Lincoln Law School in San Francisco. He assumed he'd work for the prosecutor's office. You're part of the team. Everybody loves you. You're the hero. You're the tough guy. You got everything in the world on your side if you're the uh, prosecutor. He was in his early 30s when he returned home to Modesto, law degree in hand. The district attorney's office turned him down, but the public defender's office hired him. I enjoyed being a public defender. They gave me the felonies that they didn't want, that were terrible cases, hopeless. He'd get files scribbled with the initials DBL, which meant dead bang loser. That meant the clients were almost certain to be convicted. I didn't mind. I loved trial. And I also loved the idea that uh, they thought it was uh, hopeless. And I did like winning. I loved winning. After he opened his own law practice, he took a case that cemented his reputation. This was his defense of the former Modesto mayor, Carmen Sabatino, who in 2003 was accused of stealing public funds, perjury, and conflict of interest. Carson portrayed his client as an anti-corruption crusader, the victim of a politically motivated prosecution. Everybody got together and decided that they were going to get him out of the way. Nobody wanted the case because it was political. And it was kind of high profile. I wound up taking it to trial for eight weeks. Carson targeted one of the state's star witnesses, who took the fifth rather than face Carson's cross-examination. The jury deadlocked, and prosecutors decided not to retry the case. Carson was not humble in victory or measured in his criticism of the government. He favored a decidedly scorched-earth form of criminal law. He says he's not opposed to friendly relations with prosecutors per se, but it's always clear his allegiance is elsewhere. We could be chummy and thing, but in the back of their mind they should know, and this is figuratively, that I have a butcher knife, and that if I get a chance to get behind you and stab you, (laughs) I'll do it. You know, for my client, I mean, I'm not going to do anything unethical, but I may pull a witness out of a hat, and I may not tell you what's coming. When I visit Carson in the summer of 2019, his trial is dragging itself into another brutal Central Valley summer. His 91-year-old mother is one of the few regulars in the courtroom, 
She brings him turkey sandwiches in Ziploc bags, and he helps her down the aisle by the arm. Carson was in jail for more than a year after his arrest. But because of prosecution blunders, he's been free to work and live at home for the whole 17 months the trial has been unfolding. This is rare in a murder case that may result in life imprisonment, and it's happening despite the DA's vehement protests. I'm with Carson as he goes from courtroom to courtroom with his cane and black leather satchel. He has thick glasses, heavy jowls, and a graying mustache. His courthouse uniform is a black suit. The size 48 jacket has shiny patches from overuse. He refuses to buy a new one until the day he is acquitted. In Department 4, he takes his place beside a client in a striped jail jumpsuit. He's a nice kid. But he is very much institutionalized. You know, as you can tell by all the tats on his neck. Carson has successfully delayed the case for years in the hopes that witnesses become what he calls damaged goods. They disappear. They die. They become incapacitated. They get arrested. It's not an uncommon tactic, and Carson is playing within the rules of the adversarial system. Still, aggressive defense attorneys are used to the criticism this invites. To detractors, they are not exactly outlaws, but outlaw-adjacent, morally just one degree removed from their clients. If that's how you understand a criminal lawyer's work, it's not a great imaginative leap to envision one crossing the boundary between almost outlaw and outlaw. In the government's version of Frank Carson, the boundary has vanished. Carson is not in a position to take any of his cases to trial these days, so he politely asks judges for continuances. Judges don't always like to grant them, but these days they don't argue with him. Everyone knows about the murder trial down the hall in Department 2. The defendant is smiling wryly when he tells me, I have the most well-established unassailable excuse in the whole courthouse. Carson buys his ties and his polished size 13 dress shoes at swap meets and thrift stores. He's the antithesis of the spit and polish primetime defense attorney. On Tuesdays, when he comes back from the local swap meet, his shoes are coated with dust. His secretary carries a spritz bottle to clean them before he heads to court and to spray down his disheveled hair. I look like, oftentimes, like I just stepped off the tractor. He owns a John Deere, so this is sometimes literally true. His shambling appearance and down-home manner are not a liability, but part of his appeal to jurors in a county of almond groves and citrus orchards and cattle ranches, plus a world-famous rodeo and a city that calls itself the cowboy capital of the world. Standing before a jury, Carson is a raconteur with a handful of well-thumbed stories. He likes to invoke the Old Testament story of Joseph and his brothers. The brothers sell Joseph into slavery and convince their father he's dead by soaking his robe in goat's blood. In Carson's hands, it's a parable about faked evidence. Their father had no way of knowing that it wasn't true. And he grieved and he grieved. And he believed them. And I usually pick up the piece of evidence that they're using principally, and they hold up that evidence. 
and they tell you, what other conclusion can there be? Look beyond it. Don't be taken in. You're not like that father. You know better. And I tell them that there's not a person in this room that wouldn't be sick of the idea that a guilty person walked out those doors unpunished for a crime that they committed. But there's something infinitely worse. And that would be to convict an innocent man of crimes that he did not commit. I'm talking to Carson in his living room in June 2019 as the government is about to wrap up the case against him. For a man with such a fearsome and flinty reputation, he's surprisingly emotional. Even if the jury acquits him, he fears that his best days as a lawyer practicing the thing he loves are behind him. You know what? I got a hanky. I'm sorry. Apologize. Sorry. I'm sorry to get all goofed up. For months, I've been trying to get an on-the-record interview with him, and he's finally agreed. This is not something that defendants typically want to do in the middle of a trial with the highest possible stakes. So why is Carson letting the Los Angeles Times into his home? Motives are sometimes mysterious, but I have some ideas. He's just back from the intensive care unit where he was treated for an infection that nearly killed him. So he's not sure he will live to see a verdict. And if he dies, he wants there to be a record of the case. Except for intermittent local coverage, the case has mostly vanished from the news, and he believes this has allowed the DA to run amok. I also think he believes that an outsider looking at the evidence can't help but see the outrageousness of the injustice he's enduring. Carson's signature speech to juries, which he uses to make the point that one lie corrupts an entire case, is about a payday candy bar he bought in Monroe, Louisiana. It's got a creamy uh, caramel center surrounded by uh, salted peanut halves, and it is uh, really good. I took and flipped the end of it uh, open, and then something flew out. And I looked down in there, and there was a maggot. Wow. So half this candy bar, I didn't see anything on it. And it could be that the rest of it was okay to swallow. He gazes down at the imaginary candy bar, his face full of horror, his eyes bulging. Like a good stage actor, his expression can be read from 20 feet away. I pantomime looking down in the package. And I said, and you can take one look at me, and you know that was a tough choice. Do I take that thing and eat the rest of it and hope that it's good? Even though I don't see it, I got to put my trust in that it's not nasty. You will never, ever know that the portion that they're asking you to swallow has not been dirty, has not been contaminated. And so... As you sit here and you listen to this testimony and you listen to this recounting and you get that kind of ticklish feeling down in your throat, reject it. You know better. And how many times have you used that that story? Well, that's embarrassing. Um, How many times haven't you used it? (laughs)
<laughs> That's the better question. The other voice you hear is his wife, Georgia. I've, I've done it uh, probably over a hundred times. I love to tell everybody how dumb I am, you know? And and that it, uh, it diminishes the expectation. And in front of a jury, what we try to do is be like them. We're trying to learn. And we're learning together. And... You know, and then that justifies the outrage when we're learning together that this cop is a liar. And then whenever I catch him, then, wow, you know, I'm shocked. Sometimes I exaggerate my shock, but I'm usually stunned. The point is, Chris, I find that trial is like theater and it is contagious. It's contagious. As a reporter, you're surrounded by people who want to sell you stories, and you're supposed to be a professional skeptic. Your pride is your imperviousness to getting played. Carson's emotion strikes me as sincere, and it seems tough to reconcile the man I'm meeting with the gangster movie villain portrayed by the government. He's never far from tears, especially when he talks about the wreckage the case has visited on his co-defendants. I also know the best actors are the ones who convince themselves of their own story, and that theater is no small part of Carson's prowess. Some local bloggers are doggedly covering the trial, and the DA likes to portray them as partisans for the defense. Once after a court session, A DA investigator watches me getting into the back of Carson's car. The investigator shakes his head, as if to lament that the defendant, with his Svengali powers, has claimed still another credulous victim. He's like a father, you know? You, you don't want to let him down or disappoint him. This is Micah Disney. He was one of Frank Carson's regular clients. Disney says he used to be a straight street outlaw, a founding member of a local gang. You're not another file or another source of income for him. You're a client. Somebody cares about you. He cares about what happens to you. Carson got a raft of charges dropped against Disney in the 2000s, from carjacking to attempted murder. Then Disney says he shot a dope dealer in a home invasion robbery, and Carson told him he would have to take a deal. He comes to me and tells me you're going to take a deal for 10 years. Either take the deal or get a new attorney. I can only defend you consistent with the truth, buddy. And that's it. I was very angry. I took the 10 years. I was furious. He went out and talked to my mom. And what he told my mom was, he said, the problem with Micah is he's, he's got to go to prison this time. The problem with him is, is that he thinks I can get him out of anything that makes him capable of anything. And I can't have that on my conscience. Disney served six years. He now has a wife, a house full of kids, and a union job as a machine operator. He feels an unpayable debt to Carson for making it possible. 
I named my son Carson, and it's funny because when the baby was born, Frank came to visit me to bring me some police reports. And I said, hey, you know, I named my son Carson. And he said, that was dumb. He just, he got even with people or he settled scores in the courtroom. Like he truly believed in the system. That's where he fought. People that only were able, ever able to view him in the courtroom, they thought he was an asshole because he was super good at his job. But when he wasn't at work, he was like, aw shucks. Literally, aw shucks. Just a super sweet, nice guy. Carson avoids the watering holes where other local attorneys commiserate about the stresses of the job. Instead, he haunts antique shows and car auctions around the Central Valley. Before his murder trial consumed him, he and his wife went every month to a big Sacramento swap meet, packing up their truck in a way that reminded her of the Joads and the Grapes of Wrath. Carson hoarded vast quantities of junk. He had a weakness for being unable to pass up a bargain, like the rusted double-decker bus with no engine he got at an auction for $100. He planted it in the weeds of a lot he owned in Turlock, along with piles of other junk. He had big containers full of antiques and a long barn full of old cars. It's not my persona that... You know, I'm an attorney, and that's who I am. I'm Frank, and I collect old junk, and I work on old stuff, and I work on yards, and I paint, and we do all of this stuff because we're not too good. I don't hold myself out. Carson made skillful use of his humble country boy persona in court. But if jurors loved it, prosecutors saw it as a mask for his truer, more malevolent face. They've used a lot of words to describe Frank. You know, evil, nasty, nefarious, untrustworthy, sleazy. Um, they, they would accuse him of essentially of suborning perjury, of going to witnesses and getting them to change their, their statement to comport with a defense-oriented perspective of the case. Doug Maynard is a Modesto defense attorney who spent more than two decades with the Stanislaus County DA's office. They typically did not like or respect defense lawyers, and they looked at them with distrust and distaste. Frank was in a whole category all by himself. He was confrontational, and he uh, was insulting, and he would degrade people and, and say nasty things to them. And some people, it, it got to. Well, so why, why was it different to the, to the police officers when Carson did it? Because he was really mean. <laughs> he was really mean and, and he was really effective. He questioned their manhood. He questioned their intelligence. He questioned their, their ethics. He'd accuse them of, of fabricating evidence, of sleeping with witnesses. Maynard wasn't sure whether Carson meant what he said or use this rhetoric as a strategy to rattle his enemies and win cases. I dealt with Frank on a, on a frequent basis as a, a prosecutor up until 2013. And he was looked at as, as someone who was actually evil, no different than the, the clients or no different than the, the people the district attorney's office sought to prosecute. If you go to court and you lose, as a DA, and you come back and you say, yeah, I lost this case, 
But damn it, it's because of Frank Carson. He cheated. He lied. He, he did these things. Whereas really as a DA, you failed. You, you, didn't, you didn't evaluate the case. And I've watched, the, <laughs> I've watched the judges treat Frank with kid gloves. Like they're afraid that he's going to go off. And he's gone off on judges too. The incident he's talking about happened in April 2013. Carson complained to Judge Linda McFadden that she, quote, kowtowed to prosecutors, and he turned his back on her. She rebuked him, and Carson exploded. I said, I'll have you show me respect. I said, you don't raise your voice to me. Um, I don't raise my voice to you. I don't need you to point at me. I don't point at you and all these things. In case Carson's tone here gives you a different impression, the paper called it a shout fest. The judge fined him $200, which gave Carson another opportunity for mischief. He says he led the judge to believe he hadn't paid, then brandished the receipt dramatically in court. That was the best $200 I ever spent. You gotta have some fun. What's the purpose of all this? I mean, if if the whole purpose was just to uh, defend people, I mean, that's just not as much fun. I mean, I, I, I will say if you can gore the, uh, if you can gore the man, you know, put your finger in the eye of the man a little bit, that's just gravy. Maynard told me that his former boss, District Attorney Birgit Flatiger, had long considered Carson a problem that needed removing, and she was gathering information with the hopes of crippling his legal practice. They wanted him to be just to be prosecuted by the state bar. They wanted to have his license taken away. Maynard had his own problems with Flatiger. At one point, he sued her, claiming she'd forced him unfairly out of the DA's office. A judge threw out the suit. But he says Flatiger's concerns about Carson were well known at the office. She would gather five or six. Well, one time, there might have been as many as 10 people in a room and have them talk about, tell them, they'll tell their Frank Carson stories and try to gather data to try to gather intel to, um, to encapsulate into a, a complaint with the state bar. The California bar says there's no record of discipline in Carson's file, so any complaints against him didn't go anywhere. We weren't trying to get Mr. Carson disbarred. Uh, he did on occasion treat people horribly including crime victims, right? Witnesses who, they just happen to witness a crime. This is Birgit Flatiger, who is in the middle of her fourth four-year term as DA. She made her name as one of the prosecutors in the trial of Scott Peterson, a case beloved by the tabloids. Flatiger helped send him to death row and would campaign in the company of the victim's mother. She says she never sent complaints to the bar about Carson. However, she did ask people to document his behavior. He would be really verbally, really verbally abusive. Um, and so I have an obligation to protect my staff, right? They don't deserve to work in a hostile work environment. Flatiger has stayed out of Department 2, where Carson is on trial. And there, the case belongs to her deputy, Marlisa Ferreira. So you think that whole good old boy thing is just a, a ruse or a shtick? It is a shtick. 
I've watched him do it. I've watched him turn in a minute. I've watched him get up in the faces of my investigators, calling them names, screaming and yelling at them. Um, I have tapes of him screaming and yelling like as like a madman, like something switched in his body, you know, and he would change over to this other person. I mean, it's not my opinion. It's the evidence. It's what's there. Get out of my office. Get out. Get out. Shut up. That's Carson trying to get detectives to leave his office when they arrived without a warrant to question him in the first year of the investigation. I watched him in the courtroom. I watched him calling the judge all kinds of names. I mean, just things where you're like, wow, I can't believe he's doing this, you know. So do, do I think it's a shtick? It absolutely is a shtick, and it's worked for him all his life. It did work for him all his life. Um, and he gained a lot of traction in it by acting that way and being like that. You think it intimidated people? Absolutely. I know judges that were intimidated by him. I know he made judges cry. He would lie all the time, all the time. It was not long after Corey Kaufman disappeared in early 2012 that investigators suspected he was dead. He kind of did his own thing because he wasn't real close to nobody. You know, he just kind of he was kind of a loner. Shadow Pickett was 23 when investigators came to talk to him about his missing half brother. He lived with him on South Johnson Road in Turlock. He said Corey smoked meth daily, but didn't do it in front of him. He was describing Corey's tattoos ghouls and ghost faces, plus a heart on his arm. It's an outline of a heart, and it's shaded inside, and it says, Terry, that's my mom. What you're hearing was recorded by the investigator, and it became part of a vast trove of evidence in the case. Does he have his name on him? On all? Uh, yeah, on his chest. I, I do believe it's his left peck, but it's spelt wrong. Here, what's it? K-O-R-Y. Especially K-O-R-E-Y. People had been calling Kaufman's family, saying they'd seen him around town. But if his body turned up, these tattoos, including his name misspelled on his chest, would help to identify it. Corey Kaufman was a man with no political power, no important contacts, and no profile in the civic life of his community. In a meth-ravaged county with 25 to 35 homicides a year, the case of a missing thief and addict was not a predictable basis for a multi-agency task force, a three-year investigation, and a marathon prosecution. There was a detail about Kaufman's disappearance, however, that elevated it to one of serious interest for local law enforcement. He was last seen in a friend's home on Lander Avenue in Turlock, where he was supposedly heard planning a solo raid of the big fenced-in lot next door. For years, junkies and thieves had been finding property to steal there. They called it the Antique Store. It was owned by defense attorney and longtime nemesis of local law enforcement, Frank Carson. Hans Jachtensen would represent one of Carson's co-defendants. I think the reality is that Mr. Carson won a lot of trials. They, the DA's office, don't appreciate 
him being so successful. So, therefore, what can we do then? We'll charge him with murder. He's been a thorn in the DA's office side for the last three decades, and now it was their time to get him. And they were gonna get him. Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress-Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, Become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case, and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.